одного ранку, ще на світанку, земля здригнулась і враз закипіла наша кров ракети з неба. Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dmitry Perovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. I'm just back from Munich Security Conference, where the war in Ukraine was, of course, a very prominent topic of discussion. There's lots of other things happening over there right now. President Biden has just visited Kiev. The Russians look like they have launched their long-awaited offensive. There is a vicious fight between the Russian defense minister in Prigozhin and his Wagner group. So who better to discuss all of this and more with than my friend Mike Kaufman, Research Program Director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. Mike, welcome back. All right, thanks for having me back on uh, your program. So maybe we can start with this offensive. It's been long awaited. The Ukrainians have been hyping up the expectations for it. But I think you said recently in your Twitter thread a few days ago that it's quite underwhelming. So please expand how you see things unfolding right now. Yeah, I think I think people waited for it so long that they actually missed it when it began in late January and uh, kind of overlooked the fact that after Gerasimov took command of the war, uh, Russian forces first began to go on the offensive at Bugodar, then counterattack Ukrainian forces at Krimina. And actually, this offensive has been in progress for the better part of a month now. It's uh, not gone especially well for the Russian military, although I think it's premature to rule anything out because you don't really know what's happening on the Ukrainian end to this what's happening with Ukrainian forces. But generally, this offensive is running uh, from Luhansk down to Donetsk, and it includes a Russian attack at Krimina, at uh, Bakhmut and Bilohorovka, where they've been fighting for some time. Of Diefka, Marinka, and Bulhudar. So that's about five, six axis of, of attack. It's kind of a distributed offensive. There's no one specific place where you see a very large concentration of Russian forces. Uh, they've had a very hard go of it in Bulhudar. The Russian attacks there have been very successful because it's incredibly unfavored terrain to advance across. Ukrainian forces are entrenched behind heavy minefields with anti tank guided missiles, and it's completely open terrain. You know, in the frozen winter, so basically Russian armored formations have tried to uh, advance over them with success. Uh, they've done... That's where you had the slaughter of the 155th Marines from the Pacific Fleet, right? Where the entire brigade just got slaughtered over there. Uh, well, the entire brigade got slaughtered, but I think they took uh, pretty big casualties. And there's 155th Naval Infantry there. There's 40th Naval Infantry there. There's, I think, 72nd Brigade from 3rd Army Corps that they created supporting them and a couple other units. And they're, they're not meeting with more success. I think the Russian Airborne 76 counterattacking in Crimea has been more successful. Push Ukrainian forces back into the forest that may lead Ukraine to abandon the Crimea success, uh, campaign. Or not. I don't know. It might yield incremental gains. And then, you know, you have Russian forces still making some progress outside of Bakhmut. I think Ukrainian forces may have to withdraw from Bakhmut. At least folks have been talking about that for almost two months now. I'm, I'm not going to say it's inevitable, but it's a growing likelihood. Uh, beyond that, look, it's a big question what's happening with the rest of the Russian forces. So they do have reserves. They're feeding them piecemeal into the fight, and they're using them to replace casualties. But there isn't another large reserve army out there awaiting. There's an, I don't think there's another larger offensive that people are waiting for. The spring offensive began in the winter, and that's all it is. And it's not looming. This is it. And yes, it, Russian military may commit reserves to try to exploit somewhere. And 
and attempt a breakthrough, right? But that's, I think that's about the most we can anticipate. I, you know, part of the reason for that is if you look at just pr straight numbers, the Russian military would have had to conduct a second wave of mobilization to create this additional force, and they didn't. Those predictions by Ukrainian officials that there would be 500,000 men mobilized in mid-January did not come true. Uh, so let me ask you this, Mike. One, uh, I think a lot of been, uh, predictions have been made that winter is going to be pretty stable, nothing is going to happen. You and I never believed in that, given that the Russians launched their original invasion in the winter. It made no sense to me why fighting wouldn't continue in the winter, and of course it has. But the one thing that's been a complete surprise to me, I tweeted about this yesterday, is that the Russians, instead of concentrating their forces sort of in one place to attempt a major breakthrough and, and expand uh, on that breakthrough to, to try to get major territorial gains, are spreading their forces across this huge front. There's still concentrations in each of those areas where you talked about. So I don't think it's because they're so scared of HIMARS strikes that they can't position their forces in, in one area. But this just makes so little sense to me because you don't have enough forces for this deep battle strategy of you know, doing what the Soviets did during World War II. Is this another idiotic decision by Gerasimov? So... In part, yes, Gerasimov isn't very good. I think this is probably his last chance to to save his credibility, which is very little. I think in general, from a strategy standpoint, it reflects probably Putin's impatience because I think Sorovikin's position was that it's best to let the Russian military reconstitute, rebuild, receive a Ukraine offensive in the spring, and then launch their own offensive later on afterwards, right? And so Gerasimov... Uh, I think has promised that they can take the Donbass, which is what this offensive is focused on. But the Russian military is in no state to conduct it. It's been barely a few months since they've come out of their most vulnerable point and have stabilized uh, both the lines and tried to rebuild manning levels with mobilized personnel. It's only been a couple of months. So if you look at the force quality, it isn't there. If you look at the leadership of the force, it isn't there either. The Russian military lost a lot of junior officers. If you look at equipment, they lost quite a bit and have a long ways to go to both repair it and replenish it with equipment pulled out of storage. And if you look at the ammunition, although that's a hotly contested topic, you know I've been on one side of that issue for a while, I think they have major artillery ammunition constraints. I think they blew far too much ammunition last year trying to compensate for manpower. I think they're going to have to ration it. If they're not already rationing now, they're definitely going to have to after this offensive. And I think that's that circumscribed sort of limits Russian offensive potential. If you're if you're asking about why the why are they pursuing an offensive in this way, now the honest question answer is I don't know. But if I was to give you my suspicions, is because they're trying to stress the Ukrainian military across a very broad front, that probably they don't have the capacity to uh, conduct an offensive operation at larger scale effectively, and so across different parts of the front you see about the size elements that they can reasonably push with. And maybe they are hoping for an eventual breakthrough into which they will then throw in additional reserve forces to exploit. But until they have it, and so far they haven't had any significant success, you're not seeing it. And of course, if that does happen, and you see Russian forces being uh, sort of thrown into the breach, that's probably what folks will say, ah, there's the spring offensive we were waiting for, and, 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 and here it is. Um, but, but I actually doubt that the Russian military will be able to develop much momentum, uh, even especially at, at areas like Bakhmut, because you see a lot of the fighting's taking place where it already has taken place before. 
Avdiivka, Marinka, there's been fighting there for months. Mugladar. And you, Ukraine has fairly entrenched lines. It's not that easy for the Russian military to break through. Um, you know, beyond that, look, it's still a pretty sizable front, right? If you assume, in fairness, that Russia has, let's say, around 300,000 troops in Ukraine, a lot of those troops are stretched across that line and probably busy pushing along five to six axes with the additional forces they can muster. And then what's available in Russia is most likely a reserve or replacement so they can rotate force, right? If you think even um, uh, even at best case scenario, they might have a one to two ratio or less of uh, units available to rotate to those currently in Ukraine. So likely those units are there for rotation and rather than some additional force that can deploy it. Because I think folks assume that Russia can deploy all the forces consistently, but that'll, that'll ultimately lead to exhaustion, which is exactly what happened last year. You know, I was reading up on the Donbass offensive in 1943, um, the Soviet offensive against Germany, pretty much in the same area where it's being conducted now. And that lasted a month or so, and the Soviets had a million men, took about a quarter of a million casualties during that offensive. I mean, this is a huge territory we're talking about, right? Obviously, the Germans had way more forces there than the Ukrainians do now as well. But it just gives you a sense of what's needed to actually succeed. And uh, it's pretty clear that they don't have the, the, the manpower even for this, right? Yeah, so I think that in general, um, uh, well... Ukraine no longer has a manpower advantage in this war. Uh, the Russian military, if you look at their forces deployed relative to the Ukrainian forces, are still going to struggle to come up with a significant manpower advantage in any specific uh, part of the front. And I, I suspect that because of constraints when it comes to artillery ammo, they no longer can establish the same fire's advantage either. A lot of folks anecdotally attribute these effects to HIMARS, but I actually don't think that's true. I don't think the aggregate data looking over the last year supports a lot of what's been written about the impact of HIMARS. I'm sorry to disappoint folks with um, with kind of this revisionist history, but uh, the last year you have a lot of input-output problems. I'll give you another one. Uh, bad Russian logistics when juxtaposed with the fact that they're firing an average 20,000 artillery shells per day. Okay and peaking probably spring, summer towards 30, 40,000. So it's very hard to reconcile some of the stories and some of the things we know uh, about the fighting in 2022 because uh, not all of it aligns very well. But uh, to get back to the topic of conversation, I I hold the belief that actually what the Russian military is doing right now is a big favor to the Ukrainian armed forces because... Uh, Ukraine faced a daunting task in trying to break to the south to meet a double, right? And if you saw how the fighting went to Kherson, it was quite difficult and and a tertial nature. And by conducting this offensive uh, early in the sort of distributed manner and feeding forces into these different acts of attack, what Gerasimov is doing is he's in fact exhausting Russian forces and he's using up ammunition that they're going to need to defend and in the end, Ukraine's much better off receiving this offensive first and then launching their own later in the spring rather than them going first. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that I want to be clear. I, I don't want folks to have optimism bias and assume that because the Russian military is is sort of repeating some of the mistakes in the second battle of Donbass that they did in the first battle of Donbass, 
not including the 1940s Battle of Donbass. By the way, if you're interested, there was a battle for Bakhmut 300 years ago. Yeah, uh, there's a 1700 <laughs> battle for Bakhmut between uh, Russian forces and Ukrainian Cossacks and and Swedish help that I think was promised but never arrived and never showed up in time. And so, you know, that's like they say, Battlestar Galactica, all this happened before it'll happen again. But uh, this is, I don't know which battle for Bakhmut this is, but it's definitely not the first. Um, well, you, you you wrote about the the first battle of Donetsk in the spring and summer of last year with Rob Lee, and you said how that battle and the fact that the Russians lost so much manpower and and particular materiel in that particular fight really enabled the Ukrainian counteroffensives in in Kharkiv and and later Kherson as well, right? So, do you see the same opportunities developing now? Not the same opportunities, but I see a similar pattern. I think that uh, this time the Russian military is not in a position where it's going to leave a large part of the front relatively undefended with undermanned formations like they did at Kharkiv. But I do see a similar pattern where they're going to weaken themselves and potentially create areas of vulnerability that Ukraine can exploit uh, and whereas back in spring and summer of last year, I think that they misspent the manpower they had in pursuit of these very limited gains in the Donbass. If you looked ultimately on the map, what they got. Uh, this time around, I think they're spending ammunition and equipment that they probably need to preserve, right? And that that's going to set them up for a real deficit when you look at the spring and summer, right? There's just hypothesis, right? The The truth of it will be very clear, I think, in the next month or two. But this is my own, my own thesis looking at the current situation. By the way, if, if, you, if you do the math here, you said the Russians are expanding 20,000 shells a day. Uh, some of the estimates have been we're, as high as 40,000, 50,000, right? I think were but, last year. It declined substantially going into the winter, but that's because the intensity of fighting in the front line shrank considerably. <clears throat> But yes, they were on average somewhere around 20,000, maybe a bit less. I mean, we're probably then over the, the course of the last year have expended on the Russian side, you know, over 5 million shells, not to mention the ones that have been blown up with high Mars strikes and captured by Ukrainians, right? The massive amount over the course of a year. Uh, yeah, so I suspect quite well over 5 million artillery shells. I think the Russian military was spending uh, well over half a million artillery shells per month. And uh, that rate's obviously unsustainable for any military. Nobody produces uh, this amount of artillery shells per month, right? Uh, many, many are lucky if they produce, you know, uh, 20,000, 30,000 artillery shells per month. Um, so obviously we don't have a clear sense of what the Russian stockpiles reserves are, but there's an impression that they're running uh, relatively low. Uh, of course, let's put some asterisks in there. They are on the hunt to get artillery ammunition from North Korea, and it's not clear where that stands, but I think that story is very, very yeah, real. Yeah, I've heard that to the extent that they've gotten anything from North Korea, it's not substantial numbers that, that's going to make a difference for them. Right. That's, that's Okay, that's also my current impression. Uh, they have mobilized production over the course of summer and fall, but I believe it is nowhere remotely commensurate to their expenditure rate. Uh, the only big wild card in all of this, to be perfectly honest, and I just can't account for this, is China. Like, if China wakes up tomorrow and decides that they want to transfer artillery ammunition to Russia, I can't predict that, and it will be a very significant factor. But it's the only kind of big, kind of unknown, uh, upper right-hand corner question mark of what China chooses to do over the course of this year. 
Yeah, because Iran is not going to save them uh, with their stockpiles. And I'll tell you, at Munich Security Conference, there's a lot of discussion on China and how there is growing concern on the U.S. side that China has basically picked a side and is moving to not just supply Russia with dual-use capabilities, which they've been doing. We had Silverado published a report on this a few weeks ago. Good report, by the way. Thank you. Chips and and other things that that China is importing to Russia. But now they're moving into lethal aid. There's not been a lot of specificity about what that means and the quantities that we're talking about. But as you mentioned, if it's artillery shells, that's going to be very concerning. Let me ask you this, Mike. Assuming that the Russians don't make significant progress, maybe they take Bakhmut, maybe they take you know, a few other places around their huge front here, but no major breakthroughs. And then the Ukrainian launches their counteroffensive. I assume you, you agree that the most likely scenario is, is a counteroffensive down south towards Takmak and Melitopol. There's a lot of minefields there, and there's a lot of Russian artillery and reinforcements that Surovikin has built when he took over. So what are the prospects for that offensive on the Ukrainian side? Sure. Well, uh, the first uh, answer I'll give is going to be disappointing. It depends. Uh, the first thing it depends on is actually what happens in this current Russian offensive, because we don't know to what extent it will uh, deplete the Ukrainian military, right? That Meaning the casualties the Ukrainian forces will take in defending against it. Hopefully not many, but nonetheless, right? Ukraine right now is on is on the defense while trying to husband resources to conduct its own offensive operation later in the spring. So first answer is it depends. Second, you know, Ukraine also suffers to an extent from shell hunger. There have been quite a few inklings that Ukraine needs more artillery ammunition, and that's kind of a more of a near midterm problem, medium uh the interim problem for us to supply as well. I I don't think it's necessarily as severe as some of the Russian issues, but nonetheless, that's a big factor. Right? To what extent we are able to supply them with artillery ammunition they need. They are, in many respects, like Russian artillery army. So if they were using, conservatively on average, 90,000 artillery shells per month, they're going to need even more than that for an offensive operation. And they're going to need to have that stockpiled in advance of an offensive, not, you know, kind of starting an offensive and then looking for more. So that that's another factor. One, what happens to the force as a result of this offensive? Yes, the Russian military may not gain much territory, but it could injure uh, Ukrainian forces and inflict significant levels of attrition in grinding fighting that will end up being more favorable to Ukraine. But keep in mind, Russia can conduct another wave of mobilization and then another wave of mobilization potentially after that, right? I mean, but so bit- can Ukraine, right? I mean, the Ukrainians have mobilized 700,000. So even if you assume that they've had 100,000 plus casualties including wounded, you still have a huge force there, and they could do more. I mean, it's still a country. We've got 30-plus million still still in, in country, right? So Ukraine actually is, is still mobilizing. I think they mobilized something like 20,000-plus uh, people back in January and trying to build out additional units. Yeah, that's true. Ukraine can also mobilize. But here, I think, comes in the, the sort of uh, nuance here, is that, yes, both sides can mobilize, but the quality is potentially going to begin, is going to steadily keep going down as you're replacing person, experienced personnel, mobilized personnel. And so that mobilized force may be effective in defense, but not nearly as capable or effective in offense, right? And so the question, and so what happens over time is not that Russian military keeps mobilizing and the, and the Russian armed forces are able to, uh, to take the Donbass, but actually more that 
they keep mobilizing. Ukraine also keeps mobilizing. But over time, neither force is significantly capable of good offensive operations. That's the that's the outcome I'm more concerned with, if, if that makes sense. And, and, and that's a sort of stalemate, frozen conflict type of scenario, right? Well, yeah, it's basically then you end up with a stalemate and a stalemate anywhere proximate to these lines. Yeah, it's a, sure, you can argue it's a speedy defeat for Russia, but it's not a victory for Ukraine. As I often regularly say, um, these are distinct but interrelated objectives, right? Achieving a, a defeat for Russia is not the same thing as achieving victory for Ukraine. So uh, the, the last part of your question was, what are the prospects? Um, I, I think it depends on how long the Ukrainian military waits, how much Western equipment they choose to absorb. I suspect they're going to try to go or, or pursue this offensive as soon as they can. Um, the Russian military certainly has dug in uh, several uh, echelons as line, lines of defenses. They've entrenched, and they also have trenches along different sides to uh, canalize advances. Uh, to what extent uh, Ukraine will be able to break through? I don't know. I think it could end up looking like Kherson, where the offensive in practice is a series of pushes. Fitful starts, then stalling out, then pushing again. And will take several months to make progress, right? Is it possible for Ukraine to break to the south? Yes, it is. I think in general, uh, Ukrainian forces have overperformed and the Russian military has underperformed. We sort of step back and, and uh, characterize the overall course of the war. Uh, is it going to be easy, or is it something that's, I think, um, that that Ukraine will be able to succeed without significant cost? No, I think it's going to be a a pretty challenging task. And by the way, you mentioned Kherson, and most people sort of assume while well, Kherson was a victory for Ukraine, and it certainly was, it was a grinding offensive with lots and lots of casualties, and ultimately, the Russians chose an opportune moment to withdraw with most of their force intact, right? The Ukrainians were not able to destroy that force. And obviously we've talked for many months about the logistical issues of supplying that force across the river. No rivers in Zaporizhia that you need to worry about and open step, not not unlike the terrain in Kherson, right? That makes this very, very difficult. Yeah, that's right. There's no there's no deeper river this time around. Uh, blown up bridges and highly constrained logistics. And the... The terrain certainly can be challenging, and I think you're absolutely right. So in Kherson, uh, the Russian military was definitely on the losing side of that battle. Uh, it had no real chances for counterattack. It was bleeding people and ammunition, and it was just a matter of time before Ukrainian forces slowly inched their way towards the main ground lines of communication along the river. But uh, at, at least when I was there in October, it, it looked like the the lines were relatively stable and Russian forces were slowly withdrawing at their own pace. And again, uh, with all respect to Wunderwaffen HIMARS, it was not able to interdict the withdrawal of around 40,000 Russian troops with the bulk of their equipment either. So for all the impact the system has made on the war, and it provided Ukraine a capability, a difference in kind that it didn't have, prior to introduction of long-range precision strike, I'm trying to like slowly pull back and moderate the debate on sort of game changers and silver bullets and the technology fetishism aspect of the discussion. You may have seen my tweet on this, Mike, that the wonder weapon that the Ukrainians have had throughout this whole campaign was probably not HIMARS or TB2s or any of the other things that have been discussed, but it's been Russian incompetence. <laughs> That's interesting. 
Uh, no, that's true. Uh, it, it's that's true. I don't take anything anything away from uh, Ukraine's war effort, but certainly uh, Russian compass, particularly Russian political leadership. Right, the the way you know, if we go back, it's the sort of ridiculousness of the high risk uh, decapitation uh, attack with without focusing on the Ukrainian forces and assuming that there wouldn't be much of a fight and not doing many of the things that folks like me expected the Russian military actually to do to uh, completely unrealistic expectations of what the Russian military could accomplish having lost a lot of people without conducting mobilization in the spring and summer campaign uh, to a refusal to withdraw to the sort of annexation of territory that the Russian armed forces didn't control and actually were in the process of losing back in the fall. Uh, I think a lot of it goes to the political leadership, right? The, to the to mat- demoting Surovikin, probably the one guy they had that had a clue throughout this whole war, right? Yeah, Toplinsky also, who's head of VDV after after Sirikov got booted. I'm not sure what's happened to him, but I think he may have think he may have resigned or something along those lines. But sort of uh, then having your best people stabilize the situation, demoting them, and putting back in charge of the operation the people that clearly don't know what they're doing and are, and seem to be honestly, I I think Gerasim and Shrigo might be a little bit delusional, but. The, they're either delusional or they're good liars. I don't know which of those is true. <laughs> and, and by the way, this is so remarkable to me because literally for the last decade, there have been so many people in, in the West who have been completely scared of this guy Gerasimov because of one speech he had given back in uh, the early uh, 2010s, talking really about what he thought the West was doing with these hybrid war concepts in the Arab Spring and everything else. And then people projected that as him defining this new hybrid war doctrine that is going to allow Russia to destabilize Western societies. And now this is a guy that once again, you know, is in charge of this war effort and then once again is screwing it up, right? Oh, yeah. Listen, if we're going to go down memory lane, the amount of years we lost debunking the Gerasimov doctrine, Russian hybrid warfare, uh, the sort of Russians are 10 foot tall narratives that are being written after 2014, all this hypersonic A2AD stuff. Though, in fairness, I think almost most of us believe that Russia would win the conventional phase of the war, but would struggle in trying to occupy Ukraine. And everybody had their own personal sense of how long the conventional phase might last, weeks or months, what have you. Yeah. And, and fa- in fairness, you know, they, they've no, no one predicted that they would be this incompetent, right? But, but on that point, the incompetence is continuing, and one... Latest manifestation of this is this fight between Prigozhin and Shoigu that Prigozhin is losing in, in a pretty remarkable fashion because Shoigu basically decided to starve him of artillery munitions. And what I find so interesting about all of this is that clearly Wagner has been important to this offensive, right? They took Solidar. They've made most of the advances near Bakhmut at a huge cost of of casualties with these human wave attacks. And now, by starving them of munitions, Shoigu, you know, obviously is retaliating against Prigozhin for all the the, the things he's been saying about him, uh, about Shoigu and Gerasimov and so forth. But he's also kind of kneecapping his own offensive, right? By making sure that Wagner, that has been a very effective force, is not able to contribute to this fight. That's what I find so remarkable. Yeah, it's an interesting... So there's an issue. So the way I look at it, Prigozhin is clearly the loser of Gerasim being 
being put back in charge of the operation. Also, Garrison and Brothel's people with you. Him, Sadukov, Kim, and others. Uh, no offense, a lot of them are grandpas like him. They're kind of old generals who haven't seen a war in quite a long time. But he brought in and stole a lot of his own people. Uh, nothing bad happened to Lopin. Lopin got appointed chief of staff of, I think, land forces. Um, and the two things that it looks like Wagner is now missing is steady supply of artillery ammunition, right? They're being choked of artillery ammunition. And more poorly, steady supply of bad power because it looks like Prigozhin can't get uh, prisoners from the Russian prison systems anymore. And instead, Shoigu is finding ways to pull them into uh, the military directly. I don't know where they're going, but they've cut them off of that too. So you see that, that uh, Prigozhin's wings have been clipped in more than one way. Um, I don't think he was there. He ever stood a chance against Shoigu, to be honest, in this contest, right? Like, Shoigu is one of the key people inside the regime. And Prigozhin is a relative outsider without a huge patronage network or any of this. Whereas people like Shoigu, it's very difficult to touch. It's like Sixian. He's, cl- he's clearly overreached and thought that he had way more power than he actually did. And all of his power derived from Putin giving him a chance to Wagner and in a fight between the establishment and Prigozhin, he, he had no chance. Sure. It, okay. If we look at performance, by the way, the better part of Wagner, before they started using prisoners, did have things to show for themselves. And in Papasa and May, for example, and a couple other places. But if you look at Bakhmut, they took immense casualties, thousands and thousands of uh, these prisoners killed. Yes, they made some gains, uh, for sure. But you see that important parts of the push were done by better trained soldiers following up Wagner attacks and later on by Russian airborne supporting them. And, and if you look at the kind of exchange ratio of lives that they traded for territory they gained, I'm not sure it's all that impressive, just to be but honest. Hold on a second, Mike, because that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is by sacrificing those lives, they pinpointed Ukrainian positions so those, those better forces could now go and take over those trenches and other fortifications. Absolutely true. So if we look at the tactical level, yes. But if you pull back to the to the conversation we're having, which is how does Putin judge all this? And I obviously don't know. I don't live in the man's head and I try not to, right? But if he's looking at this, going back from, let's say, November, when the battle for Bakhmut intensifies, to, let me look, it's February 20th, right? And he asks us the question, Prigozhin, where's my Bakhmut? Did you seize it? And the answer is no, right? So they've been at this for uh, almost four months, Thousands of lives lost, and he can't even deliver Bakhmut to him. It's no surprise that Gerasimov and Shoigu eventually showed up and like, look, you gave Prigozhin the opportunity to show what he can do, and he can't take Bakhmut any faster than the Russian military could back in the summer, and he's lost, you know, five times the personnel doing it. Yes, they're prisoners that you don't care about, but at the end of the day, I suspect that Putin's an outcomes-driven person rather than a process-driven person, right? So if you look at where they are right now, still hasn't taken Bakhmut, um... I, I personally thought that what Prigozhin wanted is to create, and I've mentioned this before on, on another podcast, my own podcast, is, is his own kind of uh, uh, state entity that he could use as a rent-seeking enterprise and have his own sort of separate force. Like, I'll call it like Rosvatnik Prom or something like that, where, <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody who's anybody in Russia and the regime has some... Um, 
uh, semi-state or largely state-owned or state-controlled entity that they get to sit on top of. And they get to make money off of it and get to distribute positions to a patronage network. And I kind of thought that's what he wanted to create. Not that he wanted to remove Shoigu, but he was using this as an opportunity to show that he could have his own entity and his own force. And it's that's the way he was positioning Wagner, I thought, as a... He's trying to position Wagner as a more innovative, uh, more effective, and more nimble uh, version of the military compared to the sort of ossified military force that that couldn't deliver much in the summer. Um, I don't know where that stands now, but to me, he looks very much like the loser. And uh, as always, it's hard, it's hard to assess where he really stood as a contender because it's my own observation. For whatever reason, Western media and media in our country loves to focus on Prigozhin. Right, so they, he's such a character, right? Colorful character, former convict, sure, and run, runs a paramilitary group. So he's an easy character to to focus on. No, sure, but I I honestly think that his role and his potential has been exaggerated all along, and we're now seeing uh, the Russian system reflect where Prigozhin really stands. And he's got. By convinced- the way, I actually don't think that he's ever been that close to Putin. Maybe they met a dozen times, but he's certainly not part of his entourage. And mostly it's been the MOD that has given him the funding and the resources to launch Wagner for operations in in Africa and elsewhere, right? Yeah, well, look, Wagner has always been an extension of the military and Russian military intelligence. The notion that this is some completely separate entity that somehow has its own logistics and its own heavy equipment and ammunition all just isn't true, right? And by the way, they were even using the GRU bases to train in. Yes. Uh, and, for example, you can see in in, uh, in conflicts like uh, Libya, you see that they're pretty much an extension of the Russian military, and, and what they get comes because the Russian general staff chooses that they get it. In other areas like Africa, they have a lot of room and opportunity to be on their own and to do what they want. But in the context of wars where the Russian military is involved, uh, they're not nearly that independent detached as I think as it may seem. And that's why you see them now complaining, saying, where's our artillery ammunition? Where's our supplies? Yes, because that comes from whom? The Russian armed forces, right? So I think I think that's part of the issues that they, in many ways, were always much more an extension of the Russian military than not. Mike, let's look a little bit further out. We've been talking about sort of this near-term Russian offensive, Ukrainian counteroffensive. But... Do you think the Russians are capable of, assuming this offensive kind of stalls out in the near future, do you think they're capable of another offensive without another big mobilization drive, or that's going to be the choice for Putin coming into the summer and uh, potentially fall, that if you're going to continue this fight and uh, make it more than just a defensive endeavor against Ukrainian counteroffensives, you're going to need to do another huge mobilization politically? I think that's the call I was going to have to make based on his assessment of how this offensive has gone. I think that a second follow-on wave of mobilization is very likely. I just don't think it's going to happen right now. My own suspicion is that they may see what comes of this offensive and the Ukraine offensive in the spring and then mobilize after that and potentially attempt another set of offensives later on in the summer. Right, that's just a guess at, at how, at, at sort of the, the potential trajectory of this war. 
I think that in order to be relevant for this offensive, they would have had to launch another mobilization wave well in advance, right? If they do it tomorrow, if Putin comes out tomorrow and he declares another partial mobilization, that's going to have zero impact on the current offensive operations. And it's not going to have much of an impact for the coming month or, or more. So it won't be for this offensive. I think what's happened is that if we kind of look at numbers, this is very back of the envelope, right? So caveat emptor. Um, if we assume that the, that the Russian military uh, invaded Ukraine without having conducted mobilization, so many of the units we know had generated from a force that was perhaps at 70% manning levels, okay? And that's we've discussed this before. That's why they had all these force structure problems, manning problems, what have you. And they took, let's say, 150,000 total casualties over the course of last year up to today. Uh, and let's say many of them are unrecoverable. There's obviously a big error bar in that, but we're just going with some rough assumptions, all right? Then if they mobilize around 300,000 personnel, they were potentially able to make up for those casualties that they lost, sort of refill the units. They were then able to bring up the force closer to full strength, which would have taken up a substantial additional percentage of personnel and establish and then use uh, the, the additional manpower to be able to conduct rotation and replace losses. But just those two things would have already consumed the personnel they mobilized. Those numbers. So when folks wonder, like, well, is there another additional force? My answer is I don't see how the numbers add up to that, right? And the front already is quite sizable. So to be able to have the Russian military man this front, have reserves, right, not have paper-thin lines, and then have some, some units set aside to rotate in and to replace losses, that probably is actually going to consume a lot of the manpower they mobilized since September. And in order to have the, sort of a second, much larger wave of attacks, uh, or just to sustain this as a rotation, right, to have more forces to rotate these personnel eventually, you're likely going to need a follow-on mobilization. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to go going very hard on this prediction, but I do think it's it's more a matter of when than if, and I think that Putin's probably looking to see what happens in the next month or two to decide on on the next partial mobilization wave. That's my that's my best guess right now. That makes all sense because his choices are either go down this path and take the political hit or basically abandon this war, which you know doesn't seem likely because he's all in now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that whatever happens in these offensives, look, the one strategy Russia can pursue is playing for time and the nutritional manpower grind, right? Successful or not, to grind away at the Ukrainian forces, and this is the one big danger for the Ukrainian military that they have to avoid, right? Have to avoid battles. And by the way, not, not just to grind the Ukrainian forces, but grind the supplies of Western weaponry which can be sustained at this level because we don't have the production capacity either, at least today, we're trying to ramp up, but it's, you know, two years out. Right. So when it comes to artillery ammunition, I think in important areas, those investments have been made, but to really show results, it's going to take about two years. So it's a, uh, it's a near and medium term issue. I think in some places in the West, the investment in ramping up production capacity was made pretty late. And that's why it's going to be a big challenge this year. And when it comes to equip, some folks think that we're going to reach the high watermark of Western military assistance this summer. I don't know that's necessarily true. I'm skeptical of that. But 
you are seeing increasingly uh, military. I mean, a lot of it depends. Like if you're talking about value, that may not necessarily be the case because I think at some point we're going to make a decision on jets, which are obviously very costly items. So we may be supplying less quantity but much more high value down the road, right? Sure, but to be honest, I think jets will make the least impact in this war. So it's about a question of relevance, right? What are we supplying that's actually going to be relevant to the fight? As opposed to the next ticket item that, um, you know, it, it becomes sort of a politically symbolic issue. And then uh, the conversation centers around it because it's the next potential breakthrough in capability that can be provided to Ukraine. But then this can also become its own self-licking ice cream cone, as it did with Germany in the Leopards debate, where the main breakthrough is that the political roadblock was overcome, right? Uh, not The question isn't, well, how much of a difference F-16s will make and at what point will they be introduced in sufficient quantity to make it? And is that even a top priority system or is that fundamentally the system that's being asked for because it's the next thing in line that Ukraine needs Having you know, make, having broken through on uh, armored fighting vehicles and and the other forms of military assistance. Well, and there's also political value for Ukraine in getting those systems because the more Western weaponry you have in your armament, the easier it is to make the case that well, just let us into NATO. We're already basically NATO force, right? Obviously, there's still a discussion on security guarantees and Article Five issues, but in terms of interoperability, you're going to have basically this, the same forces as you have in many other countries. Sure. And every time they get something that was previously denied to them, they can then make the argument for ATACMs or something else that they want and keep pushing with optimism. So there's there's considerable local value. First of all, between us, I, I always, you know, I always miss that because I'm a bit of a knuckle dragger. So I often have blinders on when it comes to political symbolism and political value. So you shouldn't you should overinterpret my reductionism on is this the priority now? Is it gonna make uh is it gonna make a big difference on the military side of the equation? I get that the politics is just as important, if not much more important than what happens on this. It's just that like, you know, I'm a hammer and so I'm I'm looking at nails a lot of the time. <laughs> All right. Well we're coming into an end here. Mike, anything else you wanna share with the listeners? I guess what I would share is that since we're about one year into this war. Uh, wish thank the listeners for sticking with uh, this podcast and and other podcasts and discussions. Uh, it's it's been a trying run to keep up with this conflict, and um, so what I, what I'd say is that look, I think it's already a long war, right? It's just a debate of how long of a war this can be. This is going to be, and I think that the way to look at it is. Uh, with clear-eyed sort of sober approach, not suffering from either optimism or pessimism bias, recognizing that wars go in phases, so not to get into the status quo and assume that whatever period you're in, that's how the war is going to unfold, uh, leaving a lot of room for uh, chance or for the things that you're uncertain about to, to be decisive, right? We don't know the state of Ukrainian forces. We don't know how much the Russian military will weaken itself in the next month or two. We don't really know how much ammunition either side has. We have educated guesses and hypotheses about it. Uh, and not the over-deterministic in assessments, right? Hey, big lesson for me. Also, looking looking a year back, uh, I would say I was probably 
um, more on the outside margin of predictions on how the war would go and thinking that the Russian military would have a harder fight. But nonetheless, like many other folks now, it's looking at it, got the initial period of war wrong and got parts of Russian consul operations wrong and got the uh, ability of Ukrainian uh, military, most importantly Ukrainian volunteers and civil society to resist wrong, right? And those are those are all lessons I say. I always learn a lot more from being wrong usually than I do from getting something right. So, and, and I think part of the, by the way, I'm in the same boat here, but part of the challenge that none of us foresaw is how deeply the West would be involved in this fight as well, both not just in terms of weapons supplies. that uh, was really hard to imagine right before February 24th where there was debates of whether to even send javelins, and now we're sending patriots and tanks and you know uh, everything else. But also on the intelligence front, there was an interesting story okay. a few weeks ago in the Washington Post or a week ago that basically Ukrainians don't uh, initiate a single HIMARS strike without U.S. intel confirmation. Just remarkable level of involvement that no one expected the West to be, you know, at before this conflict began. Absolutely, Dar and I have talked about that several times. So if we knew the U.S. policy on intelligence sharing was going to turn 180 degrees in a week or two into this war, um, we might have thought differently. In fact, I'll be frank: in all my conversation around to the war, the question was never asked. How do you think the Ukrainian military might perform if the U.S. completely changed its intelligence sharing policy? its material assistance policy, chose to provide Ukraine with X, Y, Z, and chose to contribute in ways that would substantially shape battlefield outcomes, right? And then, you know, the view might have been that, yes, if Ukraine had had managed to defend itself in those early weeks, initial period of war, its chances were much better. But I would say, uh, earlier in our discussion, you raised the question of game changing. You said Russian incompetence. Yes. But U.S. intelligence, not to take away from Ukrainian effort, but let's be frank, of everything that's been provided to Ukraine, uh, I think consistent intelligence support is probably the biggest factor overall. And it has shaped a lot of what's happened in this war. I think in talking to Ukrainian colleagues and, and Ukrainian military and having spent time a little bit of time over there, uh, they are under n- no illusion about the potential courses for war would have taken after April. They likely would have had the arc of the, of the winter war. Ukraine did very well at the beginning. But they were still facing pretty poor odds afterwards without this tremendous level of assistance from the United States and from other Western countries. I think intelligence has played the more critical role and in a lot of this. You just referenced the Winter War. There's an excellent article in War on Rocks by our friend Franz Stefan Gotti on the Winter War. Everyone assumes this was a war, of course, between Soviet Union and Finland in 1939, and everyone assumes that Finnish won. But the reality is that they actually were able to resist very successful in the initial phase of the war, and then the Soviets changed leadership, changed tactics, and were able to capture quite a bit of territory, and, and Finland had to sue for peace. Sure, and then Finland joined Germany in pursuing a continuation war, and lost that war too. And the Soviet Union, as part of the settlement, forced Finland to pay reparations. So Finland had a very valiant fight, and there's an interesting historical debate as to by fighting uh, so effectively, was Finland able to convince Stalin and the Soviet Union to just pursue much more limited aims in the war rather than total occupation and control of Finland? Or if Stalin never had those intentions, or if he was dissuaded by the likelihood of a Franco-British intervention on the side of Finland, which of those is true? Uh, but I'm very familiar with the article, you, with the article you're referencing by Franz Stefan Gatti. You know, he's a good colleague, a friend of mine. Uh, but I, what I will definitely say is that, look, my impression of this conflict 
going back to last spring and summer, is that you know if if it wasn't for Western uh, Western support and Western assistance, that yes, the war could have very well ended up following the trajectory of the 39-1940 winter war. I think all analogies are imperfect, right? But some are useful, and I think that's not a, that's not a bad one to reach for in history. All right, we'll end it there. Mike, so good to have been talking to you over the last year, and before that, of course, uh, personally, but at least on this podcast. And um, thank you so much for your contributions. They're invaluable, both on this podcast, your own podcast, and all the out- other outlets where you're at. So thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me back on the podcast. And as always, enjoy talking to you and enjoy your commentary. А украинцы родились не уедали.